turn to 1 Samuel chapter 28. That's where we are today. 1 Samuel chapter 28. Here's the key concept today. Don't let a hard heart cause you to crash and burn. Chapter 28 of 1 Samuel. Let me catch you up in terms of where we are as we move through this book. Last week we saw David spare the life of King Saul, even though Saul was chasing after him, motivated by jealousy and rage, wanting to kill David. That was chapter 24. And since then, in chapter 25, we learn that Samuel, the great priest, prophet, and judge of the nation, has died. He is the man who moved the nation from the period of the judges and the anarchy of that time to the monarchy and now a stabilized government situation. But in chapter 26, we see that David meets and marries a young woman named Abigail. In chapter 26, also, he uh, spares Saul's life once again for a second time. And, and then in chapter 27, David becomes so desperate to escape this life on the run that has developed because of Saul's hatred for him that he and 600 of his men and their families all cross into Philistine territory and take up residence among the Philistines, the sworn enemies of Israel. Now, this is the second time David has uh, uh, attempted this over the course of his flight from Saul, but this time he manages to convince King Achish of the Philistines that he has truly switched sides, that because of Saul's oppression and Saul's anger towards him, he no longer is associating with uh, Israel, and he is on the si he has switched sides on the side of the Philistines. Now, actually, that's not true. We learn later that that's not the case, but uh, David has convinced King Achish of this, and so he's uh, in, in relative safety living among the Philistines. But then when we get to chapter 28, those same Philistines are mounting a major offensive against the Israelites. Achish is assembling his army, and he expects David to fight with him against the armies of Israel. Now, that's not going to happen, but David is in quite a spot as chapter 28 uh, uh, begins and the armies begin to assemble uh, and get ready for battle. And while this drama is unfolding, uh, the author of 1 Samuel drops in a story about King Saul. Uh, kind of like, uh, like on the other side of the, of the border, so to speak, we see what Saul is doing, and that's our focus today in chapter 28. I heard a story of a man once who, who moved to a new city. It was his first day on the job, his first day commuting to his new job, getting, or, uh, getting used to the new routine that he was going to have. And as he was driving to work for the first, first morning, he gets a frantic phone call from his wife. And she says, George, I just had to call you and tell you to be careful as you drive because the radio is reporting that some nut got off the wrong ramp and is now driving the wrong way on Highway 280. And George says this, it's worse than you think. I'm on 280 and everyone's going the wrong way except me. <laughs> I say that because in our story today, Saul is going the wrong way. 
the wrong way, breaking his own law, the law he had laid down for everyone else to follow. But now as we come to chapter 28, Saul thinks he somehow is above the law, particularly the law not to consult mediums and uh, witches and not to deal with the occult. So pick up the reading with me. We'll start in verse 5 in chapter 28. It says this, When Saul saw the Philistine army, he was afraid. Terror filled his heart. He inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him by dreams or Urim or prophets. Saul then said to his attendants, find me a woman who is a medium so that I may go and inquire of her. There is one in Endor, they said. So Saul disguised himself, putting on other clothes, and at night he and two men went to the woman. Consult a spirit for me, he said, and bring up for me the one I name. But the woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done. He has cut off the mediums and the spiritists from the land. Why have you set a trap for my life to bring about my death? Saul swore to her by the Lord, As as surely as the Lord lives, you will not be punished for this. When the woman asked, Whom shall I bring up for you? Bring up Samuel, he said. We'll stop our reading there. Saul's life and Saul's rule are near an end. But he doesn't know that. What he does know is that a huge Philistine army is assembling uh, to attack the nation Israel. He, de- he does know that he is without his longtime uh, uh, consultant, Samuel. Samuel has passed away, and now he seeks advice. He seeks some sort of counsel to how he will face this battle that's about to break out. You see, the Philistines were the persistent enemies of Israel. They were militarily and technologically stronger than the Israelites. They have been conducting raids and attacks uh, in an ongoing fashion throughout Saul's reign. But this is a major offensive. They're engaging in all-out war. And add to that the fact that it's very likely that Saul has realized by now that David is living among the Philistines. And it's probable in his mind maybe he'll be fighting on the side of the Philistines. The Lord sets it up so that David doesn't have to do that, but you can see how Saul would be discouraged. This is a desperate moment. The Philistines are assembling in the very center of the nation at the valley of Jezreel, at the heart of the country, and the armies are poised for battle. And while he's waiting for everything to get set up for that, for that battle, he needs reassurance. He tries to go to the Lord, but the Lord is silent. None of the usual methods of hearing from God are working, and so he's afraid. Not just of the Philistine army, of course, they're strong, but he's afraid because this time he's going into battle knowing for sure God is not on his side. He has been abandoned by God. And he knows he's been abandoned by God. And Samuel, the one man he's relied on to be the conduit for God's, God's uh, information, God's blessing, and God's advice, is dead. And he was the only authentic voice for the Word of God that Saul had in his life. He didn't always follow Samuel's advice. He oftentimes rejected what Samuel said to him, but he always knew what Samuel said was the true Word of God. And so... This king who had previously outlawed the mediums from the nation made it illegal to consult the mediums in this way, which was a fine and God-honoring decision. He breaks not only his own law, but he breaks the law of God. Because in Leviticus 19, we read, Do not turn to mediums 
or seek out spiritists, for you will be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. It is this very kind of occult practice and the evil that it led to and, sp and was springing from that was part of the reasons why the Canaanite civilizations were punished by Israel as they invaded the land. God wanted to keep His people from this kind of practice. God knew that this was a practice that defiled them spiritually, and Saul had actually got it right when he ruled that the mediums were to be expelled from the land and it was illegal to consult them. But now he backslides against that decision, and he wants to consult a medium so that he can speak to Samuel, the one whose advice he has disregarded for years while Samuel was living. It's a tragic case of an authority figure uh, coming to believe that since he is authority, he is above the law. And it should have given him pause when, the, when he mentions that I, I want to find a medium, his men immediately know exactly where one is. So his authority isn't as great as he thinks, right? Consider, considering himself above the law, however, he disguises himself and he goes to the medium at Endor. Now, it's clear the woman does not recognize him at first. We often refer to her as a witch, the witch of Endor, but she's really not that. She is a medium, someone who consults the dead, and, and uh, Saul wants her to consult Samuel. So we'll pick up the reading at the end of verse 11. It says, bring up Samuel, he said. And when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out at the top of her voice and said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, don't be afraid. What do you see? The woman said, I see a spirit coming up out of the ground. What does he look like, he asked. An old man wearing a robe is coming up, she said. Then Saul knew it was Samuel, and he bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. Let's be clear as we see this situation. There are no neutral supernatural beings. There is no such thing as Casper the friendly ghost. In terms of supernatural beings, there are either beings that are on the side of the one true God, God and his heavenly host, the angels, or beings on the side of Satan and his demons. Right? There is no in-between. There's no middle ground. And those who use occult practices, who seemingly tap into spiritual powers to touch the world beyond this world for the purpose of telling the future or communicating with the dead, they are always, unless God intervenes, tapping into demonic forces. No human can do what God does, moving people back and forth through the threshold of death to life and de life to death. And that's why the law against doing this was so clear. The medium was used to tapping into a demonic force, whether she understood it or not. And this medium, whether she knew it or not, was used to dealing with that demon, no doubt masquerading as whoever she was calling for. But in this story, she gets the shock of her life because when she calls up the spirit, it is different. It's not what she's used to. It's not the normal run of the mill. This is completely different kind of experience for her. In verse 13, when, when Saul says, what do you see? She says, in the Hebrew, she says, I see Elohim. Now, we usually translate that word God or gods. In fact, some of your translations may actually say the word God there in the text. I see God. But most modern translations don't translate it that way. 
It's best to translate it, I see a divine being. That's the best translation of that in this context. I see a divine being. This is not usual for me. This is not the run of the mill. This is not what I usually experience, the being that I, I usually encounter. This is a divine being, shocking, and it scares her. So, so who was this? What's going on? Is this an angel? Is this a demon? No, I think that in this case, God did indeed send Samuel. Like he sends Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration thousands of years later. Remember, there is life beyond this life. And those of you who are uh, going to, uh, headed for glory, you will recognize your loved ones in glory and you will be recognized in this life beyond this life. And so God, I believe, sends Samuel here to appear, but not because of the power of the medium. She has no power to do that. It's because God is intervening to give Saul a message. Once again from Samuel, the man who he has ignored all these years or at least pushed to the side, and it's bad news. Samuel speaks. Look, look at verses 16 and then 19. Samuel said, Why do you consult me now that the Lord has turned away from you and become your enemy? Verse 19 is the news. The Lord will hand both Israel and you to the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be here with me. The Lord will also hand over the army of Israel to the Philistines. Bad news once again for Saul from the lips of Samuel. You can almost sense Samuel kind of saying, why, why are you calling me up now? You ignored me all the years when I was living, and now that I'm, I've passed away, now you want to speak to me. But I, I don't have any positive word for you. You are going to die and your sons are going to die and the army will be defeated. It's almost like very similar to the prediction he gave to Eli all those many years ago. Tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. In other words, dead. And that's exactly what happens uh, in the battle that ensues. And we're going to look at that next week as we draw this series to a conclusion. But we want to learn some lessons from just this portion of chapter 28 that we look at thus far. And the first lesson that we have to learn is this. God's rule has not changed. God's rule against dabbling in occult practices has not changed. Has not changed. Seances and those kinds of things, that, prohibi that prohibition still is in force. We see this woman as a medium. She engaged in what's called necromancy, the, the fortune-telling through contacting the spirit world. But this is nothing that we are to have anything to do with because if you are, if you are touching a supernatural force in terms of having that experience, you are always encountering a demon masquerading as friendly forces. And they're happy to do that. Unless it's a hoax, it's a demon. And there's a strange attraction to the power that comes with dabbling with this uh, supernatural. In fact, I, I re uh, read recently and saw on the news that what we're seeing today is a rise across our nation and in our state, a rise of what's called satanic after-school clubs in schools. Children are drawn, uh, teenagers are drawn to the dabbling in this power of the supernatural, but it's a dangerous dabbling. And oft times we don't sense the danger. 
We're blind to even the, the subtle things that we allow into our life that are dabbling in supernatural realms that are against what God wants us to do in the Scriptures. Like that woman I saw in a cartoon It was in a a magazine for pastors, and the cartoon, the woman is standing in the pastor's study, and she's saying, Pastor, my horoscope says that this would be a good time for you to preach against false doctrine. That's wrong on many levels. Dangerous dabbling have nothing to do with horoscopes, have nothing to do with palm readings, have nothing to do with tea leaves interpretations, have nothing to do with tarot cards or Ouija boards or mediums or seances and so forth. The only power that is there is demonic power. Yes, those who have passed surely are still alive and in glory or in punishment, but God alone is able to have people cross that threshold. We learn the danger of that dabbling. Secondly, we learn that God gives us time but eventually his patience will run out. In Genesis chapter 6, the Lord says, My spirit will not always contend with man forever. That's the days leading up to the flood. God gives us time, and during that time he watches for us to respond. He watches for repentance. He watches for a turning back to him. But that patience will not last forever, and it's possible to so get set in repeated sin that our heart is hardened, and when our heart is hardened, we crash and burn. Repeated sin drives up the fountain of remorse so tears don't come anymore. Repeated sin stiffens our knees so we don't bow in prayer anymore. Repeated sin silences the voice and we won't cry out in repentance. Repeated sin blinds our eyes so we cannot see the need for change in our own life. Repeated sin closes our ear. We don't listen to the call for mercy. And that's where Saul is in his life. He's come to that point where after his repeated rebellion, cycle after cycle, his heart is hard and he crashes and burns and his time is up. And thirdly, we learn there's a lot of Saul in all of us. There's a lot of running to the Lord when the times are tough, but when things seem to be going smoothly, saying to the Lord, I can handle it. Maybe not out loud, but figuratively in the decisions we make, I can handle it. And that's Saul's pattern over and over and over again, seeking out the Lord and his advice when things are are going badly, but ignoring the Lord when things are going good. And all that Samuel predicts about Saul and his sons will come true because his heart is hard. I want to tell you the story about a man named Charles Murray. You don't recognize the name probably, but back in the 60s, uh, yeah, he, was, he made a little bit of a uh, uh, blip on the screen of notoriety because in 1967, he was training uh, for the 1968 Olympics. Uh, he was training in the high dive and uh, was headed for the Olympics. He was a student at the University of Cincinnati, and uh, he was a man who was away from God, really actually grew up outside of a Christian home, never really even heard the story of Jesus Christ in any understandable way. But when he was in the University of Cincinnati in, in 1967, he had a Christian uh, befriend him, and that Christian man tried to witness, him, witness to him about Jesus Christ. The story of Christ fascinated Charles Murray, that God would come in the flesh, and he would take our place on the cross, and, and we could find forgiveness. But he pushed away that, that message of hope. He resisted the, the, the gospel because he understood implicitly that there were things in his life that he was going to have to give up if he said yes to Jesus Christ. And so he pushed it away. 
And one day that uh, Christian friend uh, con confronted him particularly, and he said, are you ready to trust Christ as your Savior? And Charles Murray said, no. It was a definite no. And he walked away. Now, because he was training for the Olympics, Charles had privileges in that university pool. And sometime that night between 10.30 and 11 o'clock in the evening, he decided to go down to the pool and practice some dives. And it was a clear night. It was an, an October night. The moon was big and bright. And the university pool had on, on the, over the top of it, it was housed under a, a ceiling of glass. So the moonlight shone into that, into that pool complex. And as, as bright as day, Charles didn't need to turn the lights on. He knew his way around that pool complex. The, the light was coming in from the moon kind of on an angle. And he climbed up to the highest platform and prepared to take his first practice dive. But all the while, he was thinking about what his Christian friend had been saying over those last few days, about how he could be forgiven by Jesus and how, and how he could know that he was going to heaven for eternity and that could be a promise in his life. And the Spirit of God, as he climbed up that ladder and went out on that platform, began to convict him. The scriptures that his friend was reciting to him began to roll around in his mind. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. His friend had shared these verses from Romans. Everyone, and Charles began to understand, that means me. It'll work for me. I can have forgiveness and assurance. And he went out on that platform, and he was going to do one of those backwards dives, you know. And so he went to the edge and he spread out his arms to kind of gather himself before he dove. And he looked over on the wall, and the moonlight was coming in from the back, and he saw a perfect cross in his shadow on the wall. And that was the moment that God broke his heart. And all that resistance and all that hard-heartedness shattered into pieces. And in that moment, he, he, he stepped away from the edge. He sat down on that platform and he prayed for Jesus to forgive his sin and trusted him as Savior. 25 feet in the air, he repented of his life of sin and turned to Jesus. And suddenly, as he was in the midst of praying, the lights came on in the pool complex. The attendant had come in to clean uh, the area there, not knowing that Charles was up on the, on, the, on the platform. And as Charles looked down, now with the lights on, he saw the pool had been emptied for maintenance. If he had taken that dive, he would have jumped to his death. But the cross stopped him. The cross saved him from disaster. And I think of that story, and I remember the Apostle Paul, as he write, writes that he glories in the cross because the, the, the cross is God's plan to save us all from disaster. There was that sense in Charles that was keeping him from saying yes to Jesus. And so I ask you, if you don't know Christ as Savior today, what is keeping you from saying yes to Jesus? What sin is it? Is it anger? Is it lust? Is it unbelief, drunkenness, temper, cheating, stealing? Is there adultery in your background or abortion in your background? Is it pride? Is it greed? What is keeping you from coming to Jesus? Let me tell you the best news you, you ever heard. It doesn't matter. 
It doesn't matter how many sins you've piled up in your life. It doesn't matter how guilty you think you are. It doesn't matter what you've been doing this past week or you did last night. It doesn't matter how many skeletons are rattling around in your closet. The cross is God's answer to our problems. It's God's answer to our sin. And we are called to bring to God a soft heart of repentance, and He will cleanse and renew us. Forgive our sin and make us His. It always works. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, no matter your past. And I say this because maybe some of us sitting here today or some of us watching online are at that place where Charles was on the platform. There's been a long resistance in your life. There's been a pushing away of your life. But the Holy Spirit is saying, finally, now it's time to get a soft heart because this is what you need. You need Jesus. You need to be forgiven. And if I've just described what you're thinking or feeling, I'm going to help you make that decision today. Would you bow with me for prayer? For those of you who already know Jesus as Savior, would you pray that today hearts open to Him? And for those of you who are saying yes to Jesus, I want forgiveness and I want assurance, you say something like this. Repeat it silently in your heart. Jesus will hear you say, Jesus, I need you. I repent of my sin. I believe that you died on the cross and you rose again and today you can save me. I want what you can give me. Make me your child. Help me to start over and now with you. Lord, none of those words were magic words, but they're words that describe the heart of faith turning to you. And when we do that, it is your grace that saves us. So, Lord, I pray for those who might have said yes to that today. I pray that you would strengthen our hearts to know that you're working, that you're real, that forgiveness is for sure and forever in you. And Lord, I pray that we are different because of the touch of your grace. For all of us who know you as Savior, we pray that we never tire of speaking the words, Jesus saves, because all around us there are those who are lost. Help us be the instruments you use. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.